Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Is the U.S. complicit in the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza? And if so, how much? As Israel continues its attacks on the Strip, the situation for its people is described as catastrophic. Washington stands accused of turning a blind eye. So what can be done to stop this catastrophe? I'm Cyril Vanier, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Time to bring in our guests. From Washington, D.C., is Robert Hunter, former U.S. ambassador to NATO. From Arlington, Virginia, is Khaled El-Gindi, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute and director of Palestine and Israeli-Palestinian affairs at the Institute. Also from Washington, D.C., is Zaina Ashrawi Hutchison, director of development and expansion at the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. You're an activist. Thank you all for joining us. Robert, first question to you. Since the U.S. is Israel's single biggest backer, diplomatically, politically, militarily, economically, how much of this humanitarian disaster, and we've just seen those, those, that footage of people fighting to get that food at the Rafah border crossing, how much of this humanitarian disaster is the U.S. actually responsible for? Well, I think uh, everybody here sympathized, empathized with Israel on October the 7th when Hamas attacked, uh, killed about 1,200 people and took uh, 240 hostages. Uh, but that was now uh, two months ago. Uh, since then, with the major Israeli onslaught uh, on Gaza, which has killed, I guess, in excess of 20,000 people now, uh, and uh, maybe 50,000 uh, wounded, and the displacement of 85, 90 percent, maybe even more, of people in Gaza, attention around the world, and attention here, certainly on the media, has shifted to the disaster, the catastrophe, I think is the word you used, uh, for uh, the Palestinian people. And there really is only one thing that can be done right now, is the president of the United States has to tell the prime minister of Israel to stop the bombing, to stop the war, and do it right now. Because every day it goes on, it's not only worse for the people there, it's becoming worse for the president of the United States and his administration. You're not, you're not completely answering my question, Robert. I, I take all your points. But the question is, how much, is the U, how much can the U.S. be blamed for this, since the U.S. is providing diplomatic cover for Israel, military assistance, and economic help? Well, how much can the United States be blamed? Uh, Israel is actually doing uh, uh, the the fighting and, and the killing of the civilians, as well as, I guess, some people from Hamas. But the United States is Israel's only patriot, patron. Uh, the bombs, most of the bombs, were supplied by the United States. Some of them are high-tech weapons. Some of them are what they call dumb bombs. 
we are actively engaged in this fight because without United States support, Israel wouldn't be able to carry it on. And we're, we're uh, Israel's only uh, only friend in the world. Everybody in the world knows uh, the, the war would stop if the United States said to Israel, it has to stop. So do I infer from that that you blame the U.S., at least in part, for this, or not quite? Well, I, I, I think assessing blame is quite useless. I'm trying okay. to make the point that if the United States said, uh, uh, stop it, it would have to stop. Mm. If you want to call that blame, uh, I'll let you do it. But it's certainly agency, and it's certainly engagement, and it's certainly responsibility of the United States now uh, to, mm. to get Israel to stop. Mm. Khaled, over to you. You title your recent book, Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Is the Palestinian suffering a blind spot in U.S. foreign policy circles or in U.S. decision-making? I, I think there's no question <clears throat> that it is. Um, the United States, uh, U.S. officials have historically had multiple blind spots, uh, most often to Palestinian political aspirations and rights. Um, but now we're seeing a very pronounced blind spot with regard to Palestinian humanity. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's clear that the United States is, uh, bears enormous responsibility and, frankly, is complicit in the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza. Um, the United States has supported uh, Israel at every stage uh, of this war. Um, there are many things the United States could have done that it did not do. It could have laid out red lines uh, very early on with regard to civilians. It could have said um, it's not acceptable to weaponize uh, starvation and disease uh, in, in, uh, to, uh, directed at an entire civilian population. We know that Israel is deliberately causing a uh, humanitarian catastrophe, and that is part of its strategy. Um, and instead of, of laying out clear red lines up front, um, the United States and, frankly, all of Western Europe, um, primarily uh, uh, most of Western Europe, um, have also acquiesced in this, uh, in this catastrophe. No one spoke out uh, to say it is not acceptable to use food and water and medicine mm -hmm. as a weapon of war. Um, and so uh, the United States bears um, e enormous uh, responsibility and is frankly finding it very difficult, having offered no red lines and a, and a bright green light, uh, the United States is now uh, kind of painted itself into a corner where they can't uh, rein in the, uh, the, 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 the military machine, um, the, uh, the death and destruction um, that is being inflicted on Gaza. Khaled, you mentioned starvation. Um, in fact, just today, just a few hours ago, uh, Human Rights Watch published a report called Starvation as a Weapon of War. Starvation used as a weapon of war in Gaza is the exact title of the report. Uh, I'll quote from it. Human Rights Watch writes, the Israeli government is using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare in the occupied Gaza Strip, which is a war crime. Israeli forces are deliberately blocking the delivery of water, food, and fuel, apparently raising agricultural areas, depriving the civilian population of objects indispensable to their survival. Um, Zaina, 
Zaina Shrawi Hutchison, I, I want to bring you into this conversation. So the, the question that I was asking Robert at the top of the show is how much the U.S. can be blamed for it. I understand Robert's point that, you know, he, he doesn't see value in assigning blame, but that so many of our viewers are asking this very same question. If you have one party to the conflict that is not directly involved, but that is allowing the other to carry out the war and the result of the war is starvation and a humanitarian crisis, how much do you blame that supporting party? And that's, you know, that's the central question that we're asking today. Um, I mean, I think it's there. I mean, complicity is simplistic. Even uh, the U.S. has been directly involved in this genocide uh, since it's since the very beginning with generals on the ground, with uh, sending weapons and bombs and and financial aid, of course, and diplomatic cover and support continuously. We also can't forget that we talk about Gaza uh, and the Gaza Strip right now in terms of genocide. But before this genocide started, Gaza was in a really precarious position. Uh, there was food insecurity. They didn't have clean water to drink. There was no sanitation, you know, uh, um, infrastructure present. So before this genocide started, Gaza was in a precarious position. And now it's beyond comprehension, to be quite honest. And the U.S. has known about this, has been complicit and directly involved in this genocide uh, from day one and enabled it to continue with its silence as well as uh, uh, financial and diplomatic support. But I also want to emphasize that in order for them to continue, for the U.S. to continue this support for Israel, they need to have local support for ge for the genocide. So for decades, uh, and it's sort of encapsulated in, in in the Gaza Strip right now. But for decades, the United States has given cover for Israel to do whatever Israel wants to do, financial, diplomatic, um, federally with resolutions and bills, which we've seen now since the start of the uh, of the genocide in the Gaza Strip. Uh, a record number of bills have have gone through the the. Um, federally through Congress, uh, conflating anti-Semitism with the criticism of Israel, etc. Um, uh, there's also U.S. organizations backing billions funding illegal settlements. I mean, we can go on about this. There's mm. APAC involvement, there's ADL. So, I mean, the involvement of, of, of the United States in the genocide on Gaza, but also in the ethnic cleansing and the settler colonialism uh, that Palestine has been experiencing is direct and long-term. A few more data points uh, to submit to all of you that are taken from this Human Rights Watch report on starvation used as a weapon of war in Gaza. On November 15th, the last operational wheat mill uh, in the Gaza Strip was bombed by Israel. Uh, November 28th, we had a report that more than a third of agricultural land in, northern, uh, in the northern Gaza Strip had been damaged or destroyed. This comes from the Palestine food security sector. The World Food Program says that there's serious risk of starvation in Gaza. Uh, on December 6th, the only water desalination plant in northern Gaza was uh, stopped being functional, and on and on and on and goes. And, you know, the broader picture that this paints is it becomes very difficult at this stage, and that's a massive understatement, to eat, to drink, and to do all those things that just on a very, very basic level keep people alive. Robert, I'll, I'll come back to you with this idea of values. One of the things, one of the pillars of America's power in the world is that it claims to uphold values and to be a more ethical power than other countries, right, than some of its rivals. When the U.S. ties itself to something like this, where people just can't eat enough, and there's a very simple answer, by the way, there's a very simple solution to this, allow in more humanitarian aid, enough aid so that people can eat and drink at a bare minimum. When the U.S. ties itself to something like this, what does it do to its power around the world? 
This is one of the biggest concerns I think uh, the United States has, uh, or at least the administration should have, in terms of overall American standing in the world. At the moment, the U.S. reputation for caring deeply about humanitarian issues is being shredded by what uh, Netanyahu and his government and Israel in general are doing. Uh, the United States is complicit. Uh, the war could not continue without the United States. Uh, the United States could demand instantly uh, humanitarian supplies, and the United States could instantly tell Mr. Netanyahu that the war has to stop. The president of the United States uh, could tell Mr. Netanyahu that, that is what has to happen, and I don't think even uh, Netanyahu could afford to ignore what the United States wants to do. But we, the Americans, are paying a very heavy price for what is being done in this war, and uh, it's going to be difficult for us to go back anywhere else in the world and talk about uh, mm. how other countries behave, uh, whether it's in uh, Burma or in China or in uh, Central African Republic. Uh, the United States no longer, at the moment, has mm. any credibility as a humanitarian country. Following up on what you just said, why isn't the U.S. president picking up his phone, giving the Israeli prime minister a call and saying, now this has to change, and we are going to have to allow in more aid, water, and other basic necessities into the Gaza Strip? Well, it's not just that. It's to stop the bombing, uh, uh, to uh, which, which makes it worse. You can have all the humanitarian aid you want, but if you continue to slaughter people, uh, that's not going to help the, the dead people. Uh, why is the president doing it? One, because he has a lifelong uh, attachment, uh, particularly in his generation, to the security and prosperity and future of the state of of Israel, but also he has political calculations. We are now, well, what, 11 months before the next presidential election. Mm. Uh, he has to think about a major part of his constituency. So in some ways, and this is what, as an American, within our politics, troubles me very deeply, uh, it appears that the president is looking to his political base. Uh, let's call it for what it is. It's called the Israel lobby and not wanting to offend the lobby by coming out and saying, I'm sorry, for the good of the United States, and yes, for the long-term good of Israel, as well as Palestinians, this must stop now. And frankly, if the president made that clear to Mr. Netanyahu, he would be taking a huge risk for his country mm. if he did not comply. Khaled El-Gindi and Zena, I want to hear you on, on, on this issue of U.S. politics as well. And and re-election chances if um, you take a stronger approach to Israel. But how did you first on this? Do you subscribe to this notion that you do not get re-elected as U.S. president, specifically that Biden would not get re-elected as U.S. president if at this juncture he were to be harder on Israel? I mean, that's been the conventional wisdom for uh, for many, many years. Uh, the, the irony is that today the, the political landscape is quite different, and and it looks um, uh, like the reverse may, may even be true, that th this might be, you know, the, the, the administration's handling of this issue has been criticized um, uh, and, and is uh, opposed by large segments of the American population, uh, well beyond the Arab and Muslim communities. 
um, or progressives, um, but but particularly his uh, base, uh, young people, uh, people of color, certainly uh, the Arab and Muslim communities in, in in the United States, are quite angry at his um, at his uh, apparent indifference to Palestinian suffering, and and his entire handling of this war. So. Um, we've seen uh, polls uh, show that he's actually lost considerable support um, as a result of this. And mm. so this might actually be the first time a, uh, an American president loses an election because of their support for Israel as opposed to the opposite. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we, I, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that, that the president is acting purely or even primarily uh, with regard to domestic politics. I think he is a true believer. I think he is passionate about his support for Israel. Um, and he is, it is partly generational. But it's also uniquely uh, Joe Biden. Uh, other presidents who've also been quite uh, uh, unshakable in their support for Israel have at least been able to see the bigger picture from a human standpoint, from a strategic standpoint. Um, the uh, the the person of Joe Biden seems to be completely blinded, uh, even to the realities of how this is going to harm U.S. interests uh, as well as Israeli security going forward. I mean, there's no there's no um, it's impossible to imagine that in Israel inflicting this level of human and material destruction on Gaza is somehow going to bring security or stability to anyone. I think anyone. Uh, with some basic common sense, never mind empathy, can can understand that. And so we're talking about a a, a serious blindness, um, a, a serious kind of emotional attachment that has blinded him, even to the damage he's doing to American interests. And and that is, I think, very uh, very much uh, a part of the the person of Joe Biden, rather than simply a political or geopolitical set of calculations. Okay, that's really interesting. I want to come back to part of this. But first, Zaina, I had you waiting in the wings there about this, this U.S. domestic politics question. You tweeted not that long ago, election season is about to go in overdrive and Palestinians will pay the price of two failed leaderships. So you do seem to believe that this is going to be dictated, how the U.S. behaves on this issue is going to be dictated, at least in part, by U.S. domestic political considerations. How do you think that shapes what we're going to see. So, I mean, just to go back a little bit, while many supported Biden begrudgingly under false pretense and, and with the intimidation of the vote for lesser of two evils in 2020, if you will, um, there's no longer a viable option for many. And um, there simply is no worse than genocide, you know. Uh, so for decades, the Palestinian-American, Arab-American, Muslim-American vote has been taken for granted, particularly by the Democratic Party, you know, the mm. party that boasts inclusion, diversity, human rights, uh, the umbrella. Um, using a system of tokenization, intimidation, and mostly political decorative lip service. Uh, we've, we've heard the talk many times. We are starting to see people accuse and label protest, a protest vote as a vote against democracy, like a protest vote against uh, Biden if people don't vote. or um, So accusations leveled against those demanding an end to genocide um, that two months later uh, remain unheeded. And I want to make it very clear that the intimidation tactics and blame that have been used for decades, this is not recent, 
for decades on disenfranchised voters that if we don't vote for Biden or the Democratic Party, it's a vote against democracy. It's not just the antithesis of democracy, but it also strategically absolves the Biden administration in this case and the Democratic Party from accountability on the direct involvement, as we were discussing earlier, in genocide and distracts again from the failed leadership of the political elite. Um, I mean, imagine, imagine the Palestinian Americans and Arab Americans and Muslim Americans and allies being chastised for refusing to support the killing of your own family members, or imagine being shamed for refusing to be complicit in the erasure of your own people. Uh, imagine being blamed for the failure of democracy simply for participating in it. If our votes are challenging a system that has historically been reliant on marginalizing, manipulating, bullying, and targeting minorities as, an un as undemocratic, then again, this isn't a democracy. Um, many in leadership have long perfected deflection and blame, as we know, and projecting their own political shortcomings on those who are less capable and or less, equip, uh, uh, less equipped um, to defend or protect themselves. And this is also by design. So um, a potential Biden-Harris loss can only be blamed on Biden-Harris and their administration and the Democratic Party. Any other claim is disingenuous, to be quite frank. And, and sorry to take up too much time, but let me be very clear here. I'm not saying not to vote. Mm. Or, or don't vote. In fact, I hope Palestinian American, Arab American, Muslim Americans, and allies uh, in our community register family and friends to vote. Go out and, and educate people on what it means to vote and what your vo uh, voice means and matters. But, but Zena, but Zena, make... here's the here's yes. the thing. And sorry to interrupt and jump in, but here's the thing about no, uh, about about when you go to the polling station, you know, on on when it's when it's election day in the U.S. presidential election, it's a little less than, uh, it's about 11 months away now, just under 11 months away, is that voters will likely at this stage, it's not a guarantee, but likely have the choice between Biden and Trump. So anybody who wants to punish Biden on account of the way he handled this war would potentially be voting for Trump, you know. Uh, and I'm not sure, if your moral compass says, I wanted more support for Palestinians and therefore I'm not voting for Biden, I'm not sure that same moral compass then leads you to a vote for Trump. Yes, but uh, nobody, first of all, it's, uh, this is what democracy is. When you have a two-party system, you have to vote for one or the other. And in Are this you saying case, they should vote for Trump then? Are you saying that people who support the Palestinian cause should vote for Trump in November 2024? Absolutely not. I'm actually not advocating for a vote for Trump or the Republicans at all. In fact, I disagree with almost all of their policies. Um, what I am saying uh, is showing up to vote and writing in a name or simply voting for down-ballot candidates based on mm. policy is accountability for genocide and for 75 years, 75 plus years of total impunity that the U.S. has afforded Israel at the expense of the Palestinian people and the morality of our just cause. So accountability is uncomfortable, but it pales in the face of genocide and the ethnic cleansing of, uh, that's happening right now in Palestine. The Democratic Party, win or lose, needs to have some serious soul-searching after this. Many already felt that they don't belong in the party, but were very, uh, merely tokenized and, and, and being part of the party because they don't have anywhere else to go. Now it's time to act on it. And this is not exclusive okay. to the Arab, Palestinian, Muslim um, uh, communities either, if I may. So, Robert, we have about three minutes left, a little under three minutes in the show at this point. Um, there's a question we asked at the very top of the show, and I recognize it's a little bit more aspirational, but we said, what can be done to stop this humanitarian catastrophe? You've been a practitioner, right, of diplomacy. At, at the highest level, you were NATO ambassador. What would be your answer to that question? Well, the president of the United States needs to tell the prime minister of Israel mm. this has to stop and be willing to back it up 
uh, with immediately stopping the supply but of arms. But he's not so far. That's uh, the whole point. Stop stopping the economic support. Uh, do what President Eisenhower did in 1956 and just said, we love Israel, we love the relationship, but if you don't stop this now, there are going to be very serious consequences for you. And he's got to show it, and he's got to make it happen. Instead of sending people out there, as he did this last week, and it's going to this week, and say, well, we're really for you, but please, pretty please, don't be so beastly to the Palestinians. Uh, that is not only stupid, it's crass, and it's immoral. All right, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much to everybody for coming. I want to thank our guests, Robert Hunter, Khaled El-Gindi, Zaina Ashrawi Hutchison. This episode was produced by Mohamed Elaishi, Victoria Gatenby, Laurent Peter, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Nanda Kishore. The program was edited by Vishnu Sheila, Zaina Bader, and Joda Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Tuesday for our next edition.